Hello and welcome to Thinking Hard and Slow, the podcast of the Royal Institute of Philosophy. I'm Julian Pacini. There are innumerable podcasts offering bite-sized ideas and intelligent chat. Thinking Hard and Slow offers something a little different. The opportunity to settle down and listen to an extended philosophical lecture, followed by a discussion digging even deeper into its themes. All our guests are philosophers or related thinkers at the top of their game. Their brief is to talk to intelligent and curious listeners who may know nothing at all about their subject. Series 1 mainly features talks from this year's London lectures on the theme of expanding horizons. We're both celebrating and promoting the ways in which academic philosophy in Britain and America has been broadening its scope in recent decades, engaging with other traditions around the world, new themes and novel methods. This episode features Noburo Notomi, a professor of philosophy at the Graduate School of Humanities and Sociology at the University of Tokyo, who specialises in Western ancient philosophy. He's the author of many published works in Japanese, and in English his most notable work is The Unity of Plato's Sophist, published by Cambridge University Press. Before we hear his talk, I just want to outline two key ideas he refers to, for those of you unfamiliar with Plato or in need of a quick refresher. The first is Plato's theory of forms, which Professor Notomi refers to by its alternative names, the theory of ideas or theory of transcendent forms. The basis of this theory is that for everything that exists, say a dog, there are lots of particular dogs, but for all these things to be dogs, there must be some kind of universal form of the dog, which they all somehow participate in. This idea is deeply unfashionable in contemporary philosophy, largely because it seems to imply the existence of a strange non-physical thing called the form of the dog, in addition to all the physical dogs, and this was an objection raised by Plato's contemporary, Aristotle. The second is what Professor Notomi calls the self-identical ego. By this he means the idea that the self is something fixed and unchanging, with some kind of permanent, irreducible essence that exists through time. This self-identical ego is the basis of all experience, self-contained and known only to itself. After the talk, we'll be launching into a discussion which featured questions from our live online audience. So before we do that, here's Professor Notomi's lecture, Japanese Philosophers on Plato's Ideas. Today, I will talk about Japanese philosophers on Plato's ideas. I pronounce ideas instead of ideas. In this talk, the names of Japanese are given in the order of family name first, and then the given name, like Noburu Notomi, not Noburu Notomi, but Notomi Noburu in this talk. So, first, reading Plato in the 21st century. Plato has long been one of the most important philosophers and even regarded as the greatest philosopher in Western Europe and North America. He has also been a major figure in Eastern Europe, Latin America, Near East and Middle East, and the East Asia. Today, I'd like to discuss Plato from Japanese perspective. My discussion will show that although Platonic studies are an important part of philosophical activities in the academic world, modern readers miss some essential elements in analyzing Plato's texts and thoughts. What I believe we are missing is a correct understanding of his central thesis. 
Plato acknowledged the theory of ideas, transcendental forms, proposing Plato's middle dialogues as a major contribution to the history of philosophy. But only a few philosophers ascribe to it any actual role in contemporary philosophy. It appears to be considered simply as a bizarre doctrine that ignores our reality. Platonic transcendence or dualism is regarded as a negative heritage to overcome in modern philosophy. If it is of only of historical interest, the relevance of Plato to our philosophy today clearly diminishes greatly. I hope that my Japanese background will shed some light on how to read Plato today. I see four assumptions of modern philosophy that prevents us from correctly understanding the theory of ideas. First, the implicit basis in considering reality. Second, the modern epistemology of the self-identical ego. Third, the devaluation of the image and imagination. And fourth, the confinement of philosophy in academic world. The theory of ideas has long been a target of severe criticism by many philosophers, from Aristotle to Nietzsche and postmodernism. Of several types of criticism, the most important and recurring one is that the ideas are redundant metaphysical entities added unnecessarily to this world. Therefore, the theory is mistaken. The first severe critic, Aristotle, raises 23 points against the theory of ideas in the metaphysics. Aristotle argued that Plato added extra entities to the things in our world by positing one idea over many things. This corresponds, for example, to the hypothesis of ideas in the Phaedo. Socrates first hypothesizes that the beautiful itself by itself, that is the idea of the beautiful, exists, and that if anything else is beautiful besides the beautiful itself, it is beautiful for no reason at all other than that it participates in that beautiful. Here, Socrates appears to add an extra entity to the things already existent in our world. According to the principle of the economy of thought, or Occam's razor, the hypothesis of ideas as separate entities is unphilosophic and a mistake. In this way, the separation of the ideas from sensible things became a focus of Aristotle's criticism. Modern philosophers raise similar questions to Plato. For example, Gail Fine, one of the representative scholars of ancient philosophy, asks, quote, are there universals independently of sensible object? And she argues that if, as Aristotle and I believe, forms are universal, then to say that they are separate is to say that they can exist uninstantiated by sensible particulars. I believe that such questions and views fail to grasp the core of Plato's philosophy. But before judging its validity, we should note on what assumption this criticism is based. I examine the four main backgrounds. First, I find Aristotle, whom Fine mentions, standing firm on the empiricist basis in considering reality. This particular man or horse is a primary being which while kinds like man, horse, and animals are secondary. Accordingly, 
He regarded the mathematical object as mere abstract from concrete things in contrast with Plato, who placed them at the highest level, higher than sensible things. Generally speaking, the empiricist position, including modern Anglo-Analytic philosophy, is reluctant to admit anything other than that what we experience and perceive in this world with our body. Second, modern philosophers are more inclined to accept this criticism because of another assumption. In modern philosophy, the cognitive subject I, cognitive subject I, is fixed as the sole viewpoint from which I perceive objects and experience the world, such as Descartes, Ego, or Rescogitans, Kant's Aperception, or Ich Selbst and Husserl's Transcendentale Zubjektivität. These assumptions together raise a severe criticism of Plato's ideas. If the cognitive subject is fixed, as self-identical, and if the reality is what we experience in this world, then the ideas are nothing but abstract object postulated in vain. They are redundant, and the theory is erroneous. Seen from this empiricist and modern epistemological point of view, Plato's dualism is simply doubling the realities. What is missing in modern epistemology is a consideration of the possibility of change or transformation of I. Although continental philosophers such as Hegel, Nietzsche, and Heidegger consider this possibility. Under different cognitive states, the world may also change. Third, the devaluation of the image and imagination prevents us from understanding the theory of ideas in a proper way. Plato has been criticized as an iconoclastic philosopher in the history of Western philosophy, since in addition to notorious criticism of poets in Republic Book 10, he locates the power of imaging at the lowest level of the epistemological hierarchy. However, it is not Plato, but we, modern readers, who are deeply involved in the negative view of the image by assuming that it comes from Plato, metaphysics. To approach the ideas, we need to rehabilitate our conception of the image and imagination. Fourth, the notion of philosophy is different between Plato and our contemporary world. Modern universities all over the world have departments of philosophy where professional philosophers and students engage in academic research on philosophical problems and the history of philosophy. However, in antiquity, philosophy was not so much as academic research as a way of life. So why the theory of ideas was also not a pure theory, but the practice of living well. We can scarcely find any philosophy reading it in this way in contemporary universities. Two, Plato's philosophy as shaking our conception of reality. Sakabe Megumi taught at the Department of Philosophy at the University of Tokyo and re-evaluated Japanese traditional thought to reconsider modern Western philosophy. He was one of the academic scholars who first introduced postmodern philosophers into Japan 
and took their attempts seriously. From this postmodern concern, he was naturally critical towards Platonism as a main target to overturn. But instead of replacing the traditional Platonic thinking with a new trend, Sakabe tried to shake its basis by recalling the deep unconscious cultural resources that are common in Europe, especially in ancient Greece and the East. He also pursued the philosophical potentiality of the Japanese thought, including Yamato Kotoba, namely native Japanese words, to reconsider or relativize Western philosophy. In the collection of essays, Hermeneutics of the Mask, published in 1976, Sakabe argued that modern Western philosophers assume the self-identical ego and take the world of representation to the subject, what is called the metaphysics of presence. This modern obsession misses the important sense of metamorphosis in philosophy. He presented our current situation as follows, I quote, it is not simple for us today to awaken and recollect such experience or feelings that shake our ordinary flat sense of real thing and its shadow in the deeper phase. Experiences where we suffer some mixed feelings of awe and fear in recognizing the higher revelation of reality in one's avatar, other, and shadow, which are most deeply related to our own self. And situations where our ordinary flat sense of reality is reversed between light and dark, and where a part of shadow, which is passed unnoticed in everyday life, start to speak with a vivid sense of reality. End quote. To put forward an alternative, Sakabe examines Japanese word kage, shadow. We may sometimes recognize in kage an appearance of a higher reality as one may see they a part of and the other of our own self, or ego. He then reminded us of Plato's simile of the cave along with the material imagination of Gaston Pachois. Sakabe suggested a fusion or interchange between kage and reality. Kage is not just an inferior appearance of the real object, but contains the potential power of fundamentally shaking our consciousness and ordinary sense of reality. It awakens us and may lead us back to our origin. The Japanese kage means shadow or image, but also light. On the surface of water, it reflects utsusu, the world. Sakabe discussed the etymological connotation of utsushi, which comes from utsuru, to transfer. Utsuru basically means something emerging at another place with the same form and content. Therefore, its basic meaning is first, a projection of the very form or shape on another place. Second, a color or sent transferred to another thing. And third, an evil spirit possesses something. In the last sense, Utsuru may imply an emergence of the divine or soul through divination, and a mysterious experience that someone becomes another. Its derivative word, Utsutsu, 
means reality. But Sakabe noted that it does not correspond to presence in Western traditional metaphysics. Rather, it signifies transition or interaction between absence and presence, life and death, the invisible or formless, and the visible and form. Between them, we see no absolute hierarchy, since they reflect each other and transform between themselves to maintain an identity of Utsutsu. Therefore, Utsutsu occasionally overlaps with or changes into Yume, dream, as in the phrase Yume Utsutsu, half asleep, half awake, or trance. This dynamic relation and balance constitute a reality, and therefore, transfer or metaphor. Metaphor is an essential factor of the world. For Sakabe, although Plato is still the origin of Western metaphysics, he is at the same time a rich source of alternatives, just as he saw in the uh, old Japanese thoughts. His criticism of Western philosophy shed light on Plato as its origin. With reference to the simile of the cave, Sakabe pursues the interaction and transfer metaphor between thing and shadow and self and object. The self is not self-identical, as modern Western philosophers assume. This dynamic and flexible view on reality and the self points to a philosophical motivation of Plato. That is, to shake our ordinary sense of reality, to reveal another phase and to intimate uh, another possibility of I. This dynamism is what Sakabe believes philosophy should consider. On the other hand, Sakabe tried to avoid hierarchical structuring of beings and rejected any idea of fixing the different stages, in particular Platonism, as traditionally understood. So he went so far as to suggest radical interpenetration or fusion between things and shadow, self and other, and reality and dream, which represent a typical Japanese thinking as we see in no place. 3. Plato's philosophy as experiencing the ideas. Izutsu Toshihiko taught at Keio University in Tokyo, the Iranian Research Institute of Philosophy in Tehran, and Maguire University in Montreal. As an active participant in Iranos from Japan, he obtained a global reputation as a specialist in Sufism and Eastern philosophy. In Mystic Philosophy, a study on Greek philosophy, published in 1949, he tried to interpret Greek philosophy in terms of mysticism. This original approach illuminates one important aspect of Plato that has been neglected in Western philosophy, namely, idea experience as transformation of our soul. Izutsu was born and brought up in a strong familiar atmosphere of the East. In youth, he discovered in Greek philosophy the crucial hints for making religious experience into words, logos. In Eastern philosophy, especially Zen Buddhism, words and speech tend to be disbelieved and avoided. They say, Gonsen Fukyu, that truth cannot be reached through words and speech, and Furyu Monji, 
that special enlightenment cannot be attained with words and letters. However, Izutsu believed that Greek thinkers had similar spiritual experiences as Eastern mystics, but unlike the latter, they succeeded in making their experience philosophy by means of logos. Izutsu treated Plato as the first culmination of Greek mystic philosophy. Plato's philosophy completed the Orphic and Pythagorean mysticism of salvation of the soul. Taking the theory of ideas as realization of mystic philosophy, Izutsu claimed that Plato's dialecticians are nothing other than mystics, and that idea experiences must precede the theory of ideas. Studying the mystic tradition in both the West and the East, Izutsu rehabilitated the philosophical role of the image. In his masterpiece, Consciousness and Essence, published in 1983, he classified and examined three types of Oriental, of which the second is the symbolist philosophy, including different forms of mysticism. He argued that this tradition takes the archetypal images in the subconscious domain to be the universal essence of reality, to be evoked through poetic or mythopoetic imagination. Izutsu first pointed out that human consciousness as a whole is image productive and full of images. The mystic tradition of Oriental philosophy sees image experience as a kind of reality experience. For example, shamanism experiences the real world as appearing as a world of images. Izutsu introduced the notion of the imaginal world, which is more real than what we ordinarily see as a real world, as a core in the mystic and Platonist tradition. When he discussed Sufrawardi, the 12th century Persian Sufi philosopher, he discussed the image as follows, I quote, For men of common sense who see things from the empirical basis, the metaphor which lacks the material basis is nothing but the likeness, namely a shadow thing. But from another viewpoint, this shadowy entity turned out to have far denser existence than real thing in our empirical world. For Sufrawardi and thinkers of shamanism, gnosticism, tantrism, the things in what we call the real world are nothing but literally shadowy entities or shadows of shadow. The true weight of reality lies in the metaphor. Otherwise, how can we explain the overwhelming reality, for example, of the tantric mandala space, which consists only of images? End quote. In the hierarchy of realities, Sufrawardi posited the independent intermediary world, which is governed by the cognitive power of imagination, but nevertheless is more real than the sensible world. From this, Izutsu took hints as to rehabilitate the notion of images for the understanding of our deep consciousness. He pointed out the interesting fact that Several philosophers of Islamic mysticism, namely Sufrawardi, Ibn Arabi, and Mullah Sadra, regarded themselves as followers of Plato's philosophy 
and as interpreting his theory of ideas in a new form. By examining different stages or levels of reality and the self, based on Eastern philosophy, Izutsu aimed to return to the deeper phase of the undifferentiated state of our unconsciousness, far below our ordinary consciousness. He showed another extreme direction of Platonism, which ends in mystic unification with the absolute. 4. Plato's philosophy as encounter with ideas. Inoue Tadashi lectured at the University of Tokyo and seriously challenged Plato and Aristotle to engage in philosophy with them. He first studied Plato's later dialogues uh, intensively, of which the main articles are included in his book, Challenge from Konkyo, published in 1974. Inoue's attitudes towards the philosophy of Plato is clearly stated in one of his essays. I quote, Of course, I seek a way to understand the ideas, but the approach to it is not to discuss what the ideas are in the history of philosophy. That is only a reference and a point of to consider. What counts is that we should truly encounter them, and that we clearly see what we encounter in the way of doing philosophy. End quote. He identifies the true philosophy with idei, namely encounter with the ideas. The ideas are what grounds our reality and are therefore called konkyo. Konkyo is arke or ground or origin. Our reality is based or grounded on that thing behind and we are grasped by the konkyo. Therefore, philosophers must recognize that we ourselves are part of it. The world of facts in which we live is different from what we seek in philosophy, namely Konkyo. This is how Inoue interpreted Plato's theory of ideas. Plato suggested that we should separate ourselves from the confusing world of generation and encounter another horizon of reality, namely ideas. Inoue understood that separation and participation, the two key terms of Platonic philosophy, indicate the relation between our factual world apart and the grounding konkyo, the whole. He proposed that participation, metekein, means being grasped from behind. I quote, We must recognize that separatedness and kotonari, different, from our horizon lies in the idei, which are not our side but being separated from us. End quote. Inoue contrived many puns in Japanese language, and idei is one of them. The Greek word plural idea and the Japanese word to encounter. He took our philosophical mission as to respond to the challenge from Konkyo and to create ourselves as a work of Konkyo. In another world, we must expose ourselves to Konkyo and curve ourselves to become his son, Kotonari. In this way, Inoue understood philosophy not as a mere theoretical inquiry or systematic research, but as a hard way of living our own life in this world. Although Inoue reached this position 
in the 1960s, he later changed and severely criticized Plato's philosophy as resorting to the kind of logos that withdraw into the soul. He argued that even if Plato encountered the ideas and saw the truth, so he believed, this turned out to be another belief. As far as Plato relied much on his own conviction of the encounter experience, he can never come out of the closed, private world of the soul. I think we should face his criticism of Plato, since it shows us how mystic understanding of Plato philosophy reached an impasse. In a way, showed both a provocative and straight way of approaching Plato's ideas and its fundamental drawbacks. Five, the theory of ideas reconsidered. Studying Plato first at the University of Tokyo in Japan and next in Cambridge, the UK, I gradually realized that the essence of Plato's theory of ideas may be missing in the current philosophical studies. I emphasize the aspects of separation, purification, and transcendence as the cause of Plato's philosophy. We know that Aristotle identified separation of intelligible things from sensible things as essence uh, in Plato's theory of ideas. This aspect was fully examined by Matsunaga Yuji, a platonic scholar at Kyushu University and close friend of Inoue Tadashi. Matsunaga analyzed the dynamism of separation in the following way. The ideas are separated from many changing and conflicting states of affairs. We should stand away from such conflictions. For example, that something is both just and unjust or beautiful and ugly. To realize the absolute being of just or beautiful. The idea of, uh, the idea of the beautiful is beautiful itself by itself. Here, separation is twofold. It is separated from many beautiful things on the one hand and from the other ideas, such as ugliness and justice on the other. Following Matsunaga's interpretation, I would like to suggest that Plato also used the concept of separation in another way in the Phaedo. It also signifies the separation of the soul from the body in the definition of death. Socrates says that the philosopher does not concern himself with the body, but so far as we, he can, separates himself from it and concentrates upon the soul. This separation enables the soul to reach the higher cognitive states called wisdom concerning the ideas. When Socrates characterizes soul in terms of separation, he connects it with the ontological separation of the idea from the sensible things. Thus, the double use of the word separation for the soul and the idea clarify the close relationship between the soul and ideas. The souls being alone by itself and the ideas being themselves by themselves stand or fall together. They are correlative and make a pair. We come to know the, that uh, the ideas, um, when the soul gets separated from the body to be alone by itself, this separating process is called purification.
Here, the two separations coincide to make an experience of transcendence. The embodied soul perceives sensible objects, which both are and are not so and so. Then, as the soul becomes aware of something beyond these, it is separated and eventually becomes the true soul, that is, the intellect. Then, it observes and knows purely the ideas which, are, which always are. This shift from the bottom to the upper is a double change of the subject and the reality. This experience can be traditionally called transcendence. The theory of ideas indicates not only the transcendence of the object, but also transcending experience of the subject, namely ourselves. Therefore, although the ideas may appear to be unnecessary and mistake to the embodied soul in the corporeal world, once it gets separated, the intelligible world of ideas is revealed as its proper object. In other words, as a lower stage, we live everyday life with the bodily senses and opinions, but we can proceed to the higher stage where we contemplate the idea with knowledge and wisdom. I take transcendence and transformation of the subject as a response to care for the soul in Plato's Apology of Socrates, since it means to convert from the bodily concern to a true self. The practice of death in the Fido signifies the same conversion of the soul from various earthly things, such as property, honor, appearance, desire, and body, to the true self. In the transcendence experience, the transformation of a soul into its original form, namely intellect, undergoes a complete change of view on reality, from confusing and conflicting sensibles to absolute and eternal ideas. When the soul is awakened, the world appears totally different, and only then does the sensible experience seem like a dream. The philosophy of Plato awakens our soul from the dreaming state and helps us go up to the contemplation of the ideas and transform ourselves. If this interpretation is correct, the theory of ideas is not just a theory about metaphysical entities, but an ethical practice of the soul. This is my present reading of Plato's theory of ideas, and you can see here some important influences from my Japanese predecessors. Plato has been a major philosopher who had had a great influence on Japanese thinking and society since the mid-19th century. We have already developed a new approach and proper reading for doing and living philosophy through philosophical dialogue with Plato. I was actually reminded a bit of Plato's allegory of the cave, which I think most people are familiar with, the idea that uh, if people live their whole lives in a cave, seeing only shadows, and they come out into the daylight, then reality dazzles them, and they, they don't believe it's reality. They, they, they believe what they, the shadows in the cave are the reality. And it just struck me that, in, in a sense, there's a similar thing about echo chambers, if you like, that, uh, and uh, our, our different traditions can be certain echo chambers. And if you lived in, in the cave of 
purely Western scholarship of Plato, it's not that you'd be seeing just illusions and shadows, but you'd be so used to sort of seeing Plato in one particular way that if you were to go into a, a different sort of cave and have a different perspective, it could be quite quite dazzling. So I think there's quite a lot to unpack here, quite a lot that's quite challenging for, for those of us who have really only encountered Plato through Western interpretations. I want to start, um, Nabula, just with a fairly a basic one right at the beginning. You, you talk about the empiricist sort of assumption in, in Western thought about considering reality, that we take a, you know, experience what is available to be the basis of our, our experience. And I mean, some people might say that's not so much an assumption as a kind of a premise which we've worked hard towards. We, we've learned to become suspicious of, of non-empirical thinking and the existence of entities without any empirical basis from it. So I just wanted to say, could you say a little bit more about why you think we, we should be challenging this and why we shouldn't just believe this is a, our emphasis on the empirical is a sign of a kind of a philosophical maturity, if you like? Yeah, thank you very much, Julian. Uh, what I uh, said, empirical um, assumption uh, is uh, a kind of way of thinking, a way of looking at the world um, from this world. Uh, I mean, uh, from our, our ordinary experience uh, with our bodies. And uh, if we start from uh, this point, Plato's ideas are just, you know, added uh, entities. Uh, so I'd like to emphasize this, uh, from where to look at the, the things is quite different. If you assume the things I experience now, here now are, well, everything, that exclude the possibility of Plato's thinking. So that is my basic idea. The response might be that's not so much an assumption as a reasonable, reasonable premise, if you like. So why, why should someone who is sort of committed to that empirical view sort of like reconsider it, if you like? It's not easy even for me to persuade, you know, uh, change the, <laughs> those who uh, firmly believe that, you know, this is uh, the right way to look at things. But uh, I just suggest, you know, uh, there is another uh, possibility or, you know, another way of uh, looking at the world. So that the Plato. So then you can see, you know, which is uh, more reasonable or, you know, which you, you want to live in. I do not believe that I can prove <laughs> Plato's ideas is a right or a more correct than the empiricist one. But yeah, I just showed, you know, there's another uh, way of looking. Great. So, yeah, so in a sense, it's just that one has to accept this is an assumption and shouldn't take it as an absolute truth. Yeah, Let me move yeah. on to this idea of the self-identical ego, which is an interest, interesting one, this idea of the self as <laughs> something which has a permanent, unchanging essence. And you mentioned Sakabe's idea of, the self is a subject of, of metamorphosis in some way. Now, it seems to me on my, on my fairly slender um, understanding of, of some of the dominant trends in, in Asian philosophy in particular, this idea of the self as not being a stable, fixed subject is actually one which is a very widespread view. Could you say a little bit more about what it means to understand the self as something which is, as I say, a subject of metamorphosis? Probably uh, you, you're right that uh, we have some uh, Eastern thinking background which does not assume the very strong identical or identity of the, uh, the each uh, self. Uh, for example, there are some Chinese uh, thinkers uh, like Lao Tzu and uh, you know uh, Taoism, and uh, the, the subject changed from human to you know another animal or some natural things. But it, that kind of things may, maybe uh, Sakabe uh, had in mind, you know, in contrast to 
more uh, individualistic notion of self as identity in the, in the Western philosophy. So I think this is, this is a very general contrast. I and mean, in Eastern philosophy has that kind of moving, you know, changing ego or yeah, even the, the distinction between I and things and I and you is not um, absolute, you know, uh, that's only relative, so that kind of things. You use the term soul quite a lot. And I think you know, when you think of Plato and, and the soul, I think we associate that with precisely that kind of view of the self having some kind of unchanging permanent mm -hmm. essence. But are you suggesting that we should understand soul soul differently, not that we're misunderstanding what soul means here? Yeah, of course, Plato uh, discussed uh, in the, in the Phaedo that uh, the, the soul transmigrate uh, into one body to another body, that kind of things. But uh, on the other hand, uh, Plato discussed the world soul, the universe itself has a soul, and uh, a kind of higher uh, soul, a different kind of souls. Plato's successor, one of the successor, Protinus, discusses the soul in a different stage and the, the highest soul. Uh, is uh, not our, you know, individualistic soul. Uh, it's a kind of the, uh, include everything uh, in, in the world. So I suggest that soul is not just in individual unchanging essence or subject, but, you know, the, our soul is a part of the whole. So that kind of flexible view on the soul is already in Plato. Perhaps this relates to this empirical assumption. I think with this sort of empirical mindset, we hear the word soul and, and we hear these things and we assume, well, okay, you must be positing some kind of second substance um, mm. uh, in addition to material reality. And if we don't have any particular reason, though, to think that substance exists because we don't find it in our empirical investigations, do we just do away with the concept of soul? So I suppose I'm still trying to understand whether or not in order to even talk of souls in this way, we need to have an idea of a, a kind of substance which is in, a different kind of thing to the empirical substance of the world, or whether or not it's just that we need to um, look at the world through more than one lens, if you like, not just through the lens of a kind of empirical scientific uh, way. You use the word dualism, and uh, Plato is uh, often called dualism, uh, the two worlds. But uh, the things in this you know, sensible world and things in the uh, ideal world are not on the same level. I mean, the sensible worlds are kind of copy or image of the, the ideal world. So the uh, the real substance is uh, it's, it's a reverse, you know. The, uh, we, we normally believe that you know the things uh, I touch or you know uh, things are real, but this is less real than the real things. So it's it's a kind of the, the change or a reverse uh, of our uh, thinking. So uh, so that so that's why uh, the criticism of Plato, like Aristotle, you know, Plato added extra entity to the world. That is uh, uh, the opposite, you know. So Plato did not add the things, but uh, Plato sees the things of our experience uh, in, in light of the other things. So yes, he, he doesn't add it, the second category of the uh, things, but he changed to see our things, <laughs> you know, our, our, our other things. So it's a different uh, way of looking at the world. And Plato believes that the, the theory of ideas is more scientific than <laughs> empirical. Yeah. 
think so. Yeah, be, be, because yeah, he yeah. believes that mathematics, mathematics is uh, the, the more real than uh, so mathematical world. So in in the modern science, like you know, uh, astronomy, uh, the mathematical structure, uh, mathematical um, background is very real in the sense. So it's interesting, yeah, when when we think about this very empirically minded. Um, traditionally sort of a stereotypically Western uh, mindset. I think it's quite interesting to me how I can kind of see it in two ways. I can kind of like see it as from one side, from the inside, as just someone wanting to be sensible and evidence-based and, and, and rational. And from the outside, it can, can seem like someone being very narrow and very kind of literal and sort of insisting that the only realities are those that can be studied through science. But I think most people, and I think this would be true, I assume, of yourself as well. I mean, pretty much everyone these days wants their metaphysical worldview, their beliefs to sort of be compatible with uh, our scientific understanding of the world. No, no one wants to hold a belief that sort of uh, in any way conflicts with that. And how could we understand this this idea that the most real things are forms rather than substantiated things in, in a way that doesn't conflict with um can be complementary too but doesn't conflict with mm -hmm. our scientific understanding mm -hmm. of the world is that possible uh well uh, of course i'm not uh, the pure platonist but uh, i try to understand you know uh, what plato believes uh, well uh, in your question probably scientific uh, worldview is part of the whole metaphysics i mean i mean it's it's compatible but uh, not just compatible but the, it's it's only a uh, small part of the whole history because Plato's thinking was a kind of um, different stage, uh, you know, uh, different level or dimension, you know, so we, we live in the three dimensional thing, uh, world and four dimension, five dimension, six dimensions, that kind of things, you know, higher dimension. So in the higher uh, dimensional uh, world, then our experience is a part in, in a small part of that. Things. So, so I think it's in, they are compatible in that way. You didn't specifically sort of mention um, sunyata emptiness, although you did in passing, I think, say something something along this. These ideas of emptiness and sunyata, which have been very typical in Japanese thought, could you explain a little bit what they are? Do they relate to what you've been talking about today? And do they correspond to ideas we find in, say, Greek thought? As far as I see, the emptiness or nothingness in Japanese or Buddhist thought uh, uh, doesn't have the exact correspondence in, in Greek uh, philosophy. Uh, chaos or flux of the world, that kind of thing is not uh, nothing or emptiness as a Buddhist thought. But uh, on the other hand, people normally assume that, you know, Western thinking and Eastern thinking is the opposite, you know. The, the Western thinking, like Christian theology or uh, Greek philosophy, posited the absolute substance, eternal, unchanging substance. And uh, Eastern uh, Buddhist thought is emptiness, nothingness. So that con contrast is not working uh, well all, all the time. Because, as I said, uh, you know, the Western thought is not always the uh, eternal, unchanging things. Uh, the, the changing subject or dynamic structure of the things. So, in that sense, uh, the, uh, we see some uh, 
similar thought in uh, Eastern or Japanese thinking and uh, Plato's or Greek philosophy. But uh, the emptiness is an extreme uh, basis. Well, let me introduce one theory. As uh, Nishida Kitaro, uh, one of the most important Japanese philosophers, uh, he proposed the logic of place. <laughs> logical place. Uh, it sounds strange, but logical space. Uh, he uh, used Plato's Kora as uh, that uh, logic. So, and Japanese philosophers use uh, Plato's ideas uh, in the Timaeus. Uh, in the Timaeus, uh, the Kora, the concept of Kora, uh, is a uh, uh, kind of key uh, of uh, Nishida Kitaro's uh, uh, Japanese thinking. So, in a way, Tadashi um, yes. had this idea you, yes. about encountering ideas rather than understanding them. I think that's a really interesting distinction. What mm-hmm. what's the difference between encountering an idea mm-hmm. and, uh, and understanding it? Well, understanding uh, as a, a kind of uh, intellectual activity is only a part of the encounter, probably, uh, that he means. Uh, because, and for example, uh, if you want to uh, know someone, your friends or something, uh, you have a lot of knowledge, you know, that he's about uh, his uh, the age or a nationality or birthplace or something like that. That understanding, uh, uh, well, at least, you know, uh, standard way of understanding people, but actually meet people and, uh, you know, to, to grasp a kind of intuitional uh, grasp should be the basis of that understanding. So, so if uh, we uh, lack that kind of basic uh, encounter, understanding of the, you know, a lot of propositions are only formal, and uh, uh, we cannot uh, really understand the idea. So that is, uh, it's, it's, it's more a kind of knowledge by acquaintance or something like that. It's a similar thing. So we have to see, we have to uh, meet. Uh, uh, that That is, in a way, the idea. So it's a kind of mystic experience. To, to, to push that a little bit further again, when you use terms sort of mystic experience, again, I think that in Western philosophy, you know, mystic, mystic has become a kind of a a scary word. We want to kind of avo- avoid that. But I wonder. I wonder if there is a way of of understanding that in a way that might make people more more sympathetic. Because it does seem to me that, um, in my very limited knowledge of this, that you know Japanese thought places much more emphasis on, as it were, and you know, the in- in- encounter this sort of sense of experience and and this sort of idea that. Through language and concepts alone, you you can't get to the essence of things. Do we have to understand that as being kind of mystical, or is is there perhaps a way of understanding it in which we don't have to think of think of mysticism? Oh, I mean, maybe we do, and maybe it's just a prejudice that we 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 don't we don't want to be mystical. But I'm just wondering if someone's struggling with the idea of a mystical experience, is there a way of um, explaining it to them which makes it sound a little less um, scary, maybe, or alien. You know, Tadashi himself didn't like the word mystic, <laughs> so he didn't do, uh, use the word, and I use it. Uh, our Izutsu Toshiko, he used uh, mystic a lot. And uh, uh, you're right that uh, mystic uh, or mysticism has a lot of um, um, different connotations and misleading word. Experience yeah, it's, experience is perfectly all right for Inoue's case, you know. Uh, Inoue's is, you know, I experience or as uh, ideas. But from outside, uh, it's very difficult to say what's happening. <laughs> for example, as a, like a religious experience of uh, liberation or, you know, and that kind of things. Yeah, uh, but th- that kind of experience can be 
can be obtained through, of course, there's uh, dialogues or, you know, practice or that kind of thing. So it's, it's not automatically uh, comes from anywhere, but uh, the real experience uh, is uh, the core. So it's, it's uh, yeah, uh, again, and uh, we don't have to stick to the, uh, the notion of mystic here. Yeah, I mean, perhaps another way to look into this, you mentioned Gansen Fuku um, and this idea that truth cannot be reached through through words and speech. You know, is, is part of this sort of emphasis on what we've got mysticism simply the consequence of a view in which we accept that uh, language and concepts are not always sufficient to capture the whole of reality? Yeah, and uh, uh, it's the, of course there's a, a few different ways to regard uh, words and speech. Zen Buddhism and some uh, Buddhist tradition has uh, very much against uh, our verbal uh, or thinking activities because it's that, that's a cause of our uh, mistake or, uh, or they, they believe. So they try to avoid any, you know, uh, that kind of thinking or using words. So then concentrate or meditate or some things. So that is one extreme case. But uh, Izutsu or uh, Inoue Tadashi, uh, uh, when they discuss Plato, of course they uh, did not exclude, you know, uh, dialogue or uh, uh, logical thinking or reasoning. So I think it's, it's um, one possible way of rehabilitating Plato's philosophy in Japanese way is um, it's, it's, of course, uh, using dialogue or reasoning uh, to get experience. So that kind of thing. So the combination is perfectly all right. Um, towards the end, you talked about the, the separations, the separation of uh, soul and body and purification. Now, I want to ask a little bit more about this idea of separation mm. of soul. And I think this relates to a question we got here from our viewer who goes under the name of digital gnosis he says what what asking what you think of this soul in the light of modern neurosciences brain and mind <laughs> when you talk about the separation of the soul what what are we talking about here are we talking about the separation of a, a one thing from another or are we thinking about separation in another sense and again how, how do we make that kind of um fit in with what we understand about the nature of mind on the basis of things like neuroscience when Plato uh, discusses separation uh, of the soul from the body, and he uh, also uses uh, another image of uh, changing the, the direction of the care. Uh, we are normally care for the uh, money or care for the body, but you know we have to change to the care for the soul. So as long as we have uh, body and soul together, then uh, we have a lot of concern about our bodily things and something. But if we try to uh, practice and try to avoid those kind of bodily extra uh, concerns, then we can concentrate on the purely theoretical or logical or uh, reasonable uh, things. So that is a separation. So neuroscientific way, uh, I don't know how to say, but you can, you can put it in a more uh, scientific way uh, because uh, our neuroscientific mind, you know, operation is uh, just to avoid, you know, uh, the uh, bodily concern, but to focus on the purely uh, reasonable, uh, rational uh, side of our uh, mental activities. <laughs> right. Make sense? Okay. Yeah, I think it does. Let's just check I have made sense of it. So what you're saying is that, let's say I'm, I'm, I'm you know, uh, pretty convinced that 
there is no soul as some kind of substance or something. The separation you're talking about isn't isn't necessarily a separating two things. It's a separating certain aspects of my existence and putting the focus on yes. the one which is most important. I think most people can understand that, okay, to, 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 to make that separation of soul, intellect, whatever you might kind of think, our higher capacities mm-hmm. from our mere mm-hmm. animal nature, to focus on that is an ethical mm-hmm. practice, as you say. Um, how is it an ethical practice to focus on ideas rather than instantiated objects? <laughs> yes, I think that there's two things uh, come together. I mean, you know, the uh, the separation of the soul from uh, the body and the separation of the, the ideas from the sensible things. Well, I think this is the same way, a neuroscientific way, uh, probably one can explain, you know, uh, when I purely concentrate on uh, my uh, intelligence or, you know, the uh, rational uh, things, then I can perceive the, the world uh, you know, more deeply and uh, not just my, my sense perception, but, you know, the structure of the world or the, uh, the more, not special temporal way, <laughs> more uh, higher uh, theoretical way. So that's a change of the, our understanding of the world come together with uh, the, the separation of the soul. So. I think that's uh, quite reasonable um, explanation. Uh, you know, the, I myself changed into the pure intellect. Then what I see is diff- uh, changed from the sensible, ordinary things to the uh, something else. Okay, so, and, and so this is the way in which philosophy then therefore becomes a way of life because you're changing the way you uh, yes, relate yeah, to yourself yes, and yes, the world. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, as something to be commended on or not, commended again i think some people might think that when one talks about you know this this separation and the focus on the transcendent soul it it sounds very noble it sounds like a a high aspiration Uh, some people might say though that you know in in a way maybe the mistake here is though that we we live in a world of of messy empirical reality yeah that that is what life is like and that the the attraction of living on a plane where we're pure intellect, pure ideas. It's very seductive, but that's an illusion because actually the world is a world of of changing, messy, imperfect things. How, how would you respond to that worry? Of course, and I live in this world and I use you know uh, things uh, around me. <laughs> and well, uh, in that case, is Plato's uh, simile of the cape, uh, the, the last stage of that uh, simile uh, will answer. Yeah, Be- because uh, the someone uh, who uh, were born and uh, lived in the cape uh, once get out of the cape and saw the, uh, the true reality, but he or she uh, returned into the cave uh, th- again and live there. Uh, you know, so that is a final uh, stage of the cave analogy. So that is uh, Plato's uh, proposal of the philosopher king, philosopher ruler. And uh, what, what, what does it mean? Well, having that experience, idea experience, we can see this sensible world slightly differently or slightly clearly in what's happening and living in the same same world with uh, my my neighbors you know friends and other uh, you know people but seeing the same things differently so that is a, a hopeful result of the uh, experience idea experience but what kind of things happen for example normally uh, we see one action uh, or one 
one person, just one, just, you know, the people, well, we say that oh, everything is gray, you know, so there's no black and white. So that is our starting point, you know, our sensible world is uh, both confusing and changing, so we cannot say definitely either. But once we really see the, the real things, uh, the justice itself or something, then we can see how much justice or how just, how unjust this each particular case is. So we can distinguish or uh, discern uh, these things in, in the light of the, uh, the ideas. So the same life in this sensible world will change. So that is uh, uh, one answer uh, Plato gives in the simile of analogy, the simile, simile of the cave. Yeah, that is interesting, isn't it? People perhaps forget that part of the story is you go back into the cave. That's the whole, kind <laughs> yeah, of the point. Yeah, um, well, uh, well, philosopher didn't want to go return to that. But we have a body, you know, we cannot get uh, out of the body completely uh, as long as I live. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's necessary. Okay, I just need to ask one, one final question, which is inspired by several different comments in the chat. Mm-hmm. It is the case that in, in Japanese, there, there's something called, referred to sometimes as the asymmetry of ignorance, which is that Western philosophers tend to be very ignorant of philosophy outside of the West, but philosophers outside of the West tend to be very knowledgeable about Western philosophy. Um, but if you think about what, what Western philosophy has been of particular interest in Japan, there's been a lot of interest in phenomenology and in particular Heidegger. And I just w- wanted to ask you, wh- why do you think that is that? What, what, why is there an affinity, if you like, between uh, the kind of Heideggerian phenomenology and, and traditional Japanese thought? What's the point of connection there? A good question, yes. And, uh, of course, you know, we have, uh, uh, for example, my department, uh, my department of philosophy as uh, uh, Western uh, philosophy, uh, basically history of Western philosophy. One of my colleagues is a specialist in Heidegger. And and uh, there is one reason is uh, the historical connections. Uh, as uh, several uh, Japanese philosophers, young philosophers staying in Germany uh, with uh, Heidegger and uh, directly uh, taught by him, and, and uh, they introduce Heideggerian uh, uh, way of thinking. And for example, Watsuji Tetsuro, Kikishuzo, uh, so and Mikiyoshi. So, uh, so there's personal uh, connection. And Heidegger uh, also mentioned Japanese philosophy in his one of his uh, work. So it's it's a, it's a kind of historical connection. But also there are some parallelism between the uh, early part of the 20th century philosophy in Germany and Japan. As a social uh, situation is very similar, and a cultural situation is similar uh, before the war. So I think something uh, in common. And Japanese philosophers like German philosophy uh, more than Anglo-American philosophy uh, because uh, the, our image of philosophy is kind of deep, you know, the uh, profound, uh, <laughs> you know, and systematic philosophy. So that is the image. So still, uh, Japanese philosophers are uh, yeah, more inclined to study um, well German background. Uh, now, now it's changing. It's more uh, Anglo-American philosophers. Uh, uh, strong uh, in, in our department. but So, yeah, there's uh, some interesting um, uh, reasons for Japanese people's preference of the philosophers, Western philosophers, and also China or Korea, you know, they, they have their own uh, preference. And 
And so it's not a, a monolithic, you know, East Asian countries, each has a different tradition and well, uh, interest in Western philosophy and uh, the combination of traditional thought and Western philosophy. So in the case of Japan, phenomenology and Heidegger is one of that example. Thank you for listening. There are plenty more episodes to come in this series, so do subscribe on whichever platform you use, leave us a review, and tell your friends about it. You can also watch video versions of all the talks and many more from previous years on the Royal Institute of Philosophy's YouTube channel. And you can sign up to the Institute's newsletters and find out about our live events at royalinstitutephilosophy.org and follow us on Twitter or Facebook. So until next time, if nothing prevents, goodbye.